Okay, hi. Well, I thought I'd uh, say something about a, a, a relatively recent research interest of mine, though exploiting work in general philosophy of science that I've done over the years. When my wife, who's a physician, told me back in the late 1980s that there was a new movement called evidence-based medicine, then my reaction was that of any right-thinking person, I think, then me to more or less fall off my chair and say, oh my God, what was it based on before? It seems obvious that uh, medicine, like any rational pursuit, should be based on the evidence. So why was it that uh, people felt it necessary to have a, uh, an evidence-based medicine movement? To answer that question, you will need to look back at the history of medicine, where one can find all sorts of treatments. Bloodletting is the favourite example that were sworn by, by, for decades, even centuries, as effective treatments that we now see in the light of as it were, real evidence, were not effective. Indeed, they were not even placebos. They were actually doing harm. Large numbers of people, George Washington's a famous example, were plainly killed by the bloodletting intervention that, uh, that, that, that was uh, undertaken on him. So, but these people who were doing the bloodletting weren't, of course, vicious people. They really believed that they had evidence to the effectiveness of their treatment. After all, some people recovered, as we would now say, despite the bloodletting, uh, but it's tempting to infer from the fact that they were treated by bloodletting and recovered that, it, that, that the bloodletting was the cause of the recovery. And if they died, well, everybody dies anyway, eventually, and they might have died even more quickly and in even more discomfort if they hadn't had the bloodletting treatment. But we can see now that these people were making a, an evidential fallacy, usually called by philosophers who like fancy names, the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, uh, when they inferred from the fact that there were large numbers of people that they treated who re with bloodletting who recovered, that the recovery was caused by the uh, bloodletting. So the fear was amongst evidence-based med medics that maybe there were large numbers of treatments that were authorised in contemporary medicine that were equally thought, believed to be evidence-based, but weren't really evidence-based. And then the question becomes, what, so what's real evidence? What does it take for, re, for, for a treatment to have a real evidential basis? And the message that many people took away from evidence-based medicine initially was that the only real evidence came from randomised controlled trials where you take a bunch of people who are going to be the experimental group, uh, or the study group rather, and you divide them by some random process into the experimental group, the trial group who get the actual intervention, and a, a control group who will get either conventional treatment, as now is, or a placebo. The view that the only evidence, real evidence, real scientific evidence, comes from randomised control trials was never really tenable, and the evidence-based medics all believed, uh, or eventually accepted, uh, or maybe a belief right from the beginning that the, the, the situation was much more complex. And the situation now is more complex, acknowledged to be more complex. We now have something called evidence hierarchies, but these evidence hierarchies, there are many of them, and they differ. some of them differ in quite substantial ways from others. And the view as to what really counts as evidence in medicine is very much an open issue now, and one that I think philosophers of science can contribute to and should have been perhaps contributing to for a lot longer than they have and certainly in the last decade or so I've been doing work in, in this area trying to clarify uh, really mainly two main issues that I, that I could mention. One is what are the virtues of randomization? Uh, 
and certainly I've come to the conclusion that they've been, although greatly overestimated, is nonetheless there are some virtues to randomization, but there are also virtues to well-conducted, historically controlled trials that have generally been overlooked. And then the second issue that a philosopher can help with, I think, is the, what's sometimes called the problem of external validity. When you do trials of any kind, there are systematic inclusion and exclusion criteria. You, know, you don't want people to be too old because it's thought ethically that's unacceptable. You don't want people to have too many comorbidities. But of course, that when you come to having got, a, let's say, a positive result in the trial, uh, you, the, the target population, i.e. the population that the clinicians are going to actually be treated, will have significant comorbidities, will perhaps be taking these treatments for a lot longer than the trial lasted, uh, will be elderly, and so on. And the issue of what the evidence from a controlled trial about the study population tells you about the target population is another very important issue that I think philosophers can help with. So I think it's a really exciting area, the, the methodology of medicine, looked at from the fundamental viewpoint of confirmation theory, logic of evidence that's always, of course, been a very central part of philosophy of science.